Welcome to Martial Wisdom. Here you can listen to conversations on all kinds of topics related to martial arts. The topic for today's show is, how do you handle a really fast opponent? Joining me in this discussion is Stephen Scott. Before we get started, please consider supporting this podcast by liking and sharing it. If you're interested in even more content, please consider subscribing to the Spirit Aikido online program. I'm proud to announce that the program currently has over 260 videos. Another option is to contribute any amount you like through the PayPal tip jar. Even small contributions are greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, on with the discussion. Welcome back to Modern Aikido's podcast and Martial Wisdom. And uh, I'm thrilled once again to have my friend Stephen Scott come back to the show. And we got a great discussion today. We're going to talk about how to deal with, with speed, somebody who's faster than you are. And we're going to talk about it uh, with some practical ideas for the best way to handle either somebody you know is faster than you are or somebody that you don't, you aren't sure, but you've got to be careful not to get caught by their speed. So welcome back, Stephen. Yeah, hi, Tristan. Thanks for having me. You bet. I hope you enjoy being had. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ask me at the end. Yeah, exactly. So this, the topic of speed, I think, is something that every martial artist, every fighter uh, faces. And, you know, we, we see Bruce Lee movies where he was so blazingly fast. And we hear about how he admitted he had to slow down to, so that what he was doing could even be seen by people watching the film. Uh, and speed is so seductive. We think, man, if we're just faster than anything, then we can, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to prevail. We're going to succeed. Well, the reality is we can't all be Bruce Lee fast. And the other reality is that there is always going to be somebody faster out there than you are, um, despite how much you train. And, and there are people that are those of us that are limited by, you know, one of those factors of speed, whether it's physical execution speed or, or the perception of your eye speed or your decision speed. All of these things uh, can, can ding you if, you if you're lacking one of those characteristics to make you a little slower and we age. So as we age, we will get a little slower. And as you age, it's, I think it's, it becomes more important to think about how can you use, how do you beat that speed or how do you account for it so that you're not just at the whim of somebody who's fast. Thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I remember an old adage uh, from my karate instructor way back in the day when I was a very young man. And what he used to tell me is it's not always the best fighter or the fastest fighter that will win a competition or a bout or a situation. Very often it's the one who is the smartest. It's the one who can use their proper mm -hmm. attitude, their proper mindset to control the situation round about them. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I like to bring forth for all of my students is that if you find yourself in an encounter, unless you have seen them before, it's not like when you're training if I were to go and train for a boxing match, I'd be I'd be checking out who I'm fighting. I would know months in advance. I could check out the form. I could look at how they train. You know, it's it's all there. I, I would uh, find people who've trained with them before, fought them before, get some information on them. What's the fast point? What's the weak point? We don't have that luxury when we suddenly find ourselves out of our norm and into an engagement, either in a competitive sense, you know, in a an open martial arts tournament or in a direct sense within a, any kind of self-defense aspect. So uh, in those cases, that's where 
it's it's not necessarily the fastest one who's going to prevail there. It's who's able to control their own situation better and who's able to identify the threat process. And for me, that's one of the key fundamental aspects of if you ever find yourself faced with a faster opponent, it's a bit of a, a little bit of a dichotomy because the only way you're going to find out if they're faster is when they react. And by the time they react, you're in that situation. So mm -hmm. if you immediately find that they're faster than you without any provocation, then one of two things are going to happen. You're either going to survive that first moment of contact or you're not. Okay, and that's essentially how it's going to come down. If you manage to get through that first moment of contact, then that's where you, in all your, trying to control all your animal brain, monkey and lizard brain responses to get out of there or puff yourself up or do whatever, you have to maintain that sense of self-control and you have to try and engage with yourself and know what your limitations are and try and identify how you can achieve a strategic advantage over the individual that you're currently facing based on the limited information that you have in that first moment of encounter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you've covered kind of one of the two areas I really wanted to talk about within the show. And, and uh, there's kind of the, the sport realm, like you said, where you've got an opponent, you know he's quicker, you've studied him, you've seen him before, or you've, you have an estimation, uh, a, sum, a summary of kind of what you're dealing with. And you, now you have to form a plan for how to deal with it. And then what you just covered was more of the self-defense angle where you don't have the benefit of, of intelligence. You haven't done any recon. You don't know necessarily what you run into. Although there are ways that you can, things, indicators you can watch for that will tell you how somebody, how quick somebody might be. And I like looking at things like, what is their, how do they take their steps? Do they kind of lumber or do, or do they have kind of somewhat quick feet? And, um, you know, hand speed is another one that, that is, uh, you want to find indications for. And this one can be very deceptive because you see somebody, usually somebody who's very big in the body and they kind of move slow and you think, oh yeah, they're going to be slow. They can have incredibly fast hands um, because, you know, they're strong. A, a big person, always remember that they work out just by moving around. They're moving so much weight around that their muscles are getting more conditioning than somebody who's really lean or thin. And because most, we, we often think of, you know, middleweight, featherweight, lightweight people being really quick. And generally they are, they tend to have a very high strength to weight ratio, which makes them quicker than, than usual. Uh, but they will also kind of give it away with their body language by being kind of twitchy or kind of quick to move their shoulders or their hips or, or step, take steps. And you can kind of get a, a very quick profile um, which is usually pretty close, uh, just in estimating, watching somebody how somebody moves. But the hands can be different than how the body moves, and mm. that uh, you know I I got that from you know a, a friend who learned the hard way of you look at a big guy and think oh yeah you know he's going to be slow and then you wake up he said I woke up and realized he was quicker than I thought <laughs> just like you said <laughs> yeah you, you get the test of speed and and you may survive it or you may not um, in his case you know, got the drop on him one shot and that was enough mm -hmm. to, to, to end his ability to, to keep going. Um, yeah. and that's, that I think is one of those self-defense realm areas that's so different from sport. And I know we've had tons of discussions about this, not necessarily you and I, but on the forum and within between martial artists for, for years about what is different between sport fighting and street fighting or, or real 
you know, self-defense type realm martial art violence. And the big one is there's no referee to say go. Now you're, you're in some kind of a verbal altercation. Somebody's eyed you up, they've approached you. And there's a million different ways this can happen, whether it's a predator that is approaching you to you know, steal from you and he doesn't mind knocking you out to take your wallet up to somebody that's, you know, got a problem with you personally, and they're going to, they're going to come after you. And, um, and I think that there are some certain principles that apply to the sport that, that apply to the real world one. And one of my favorites is make somebody take the long way to get to you. You do your opponent or attacker a favor when you let them walk right up into their range, they're facing you head on and you, your brain says, well, we're, we're in conversation mode right now. We're just going to, we're, we're, we're going to verbally exchange. Well, in your mind, that's what's happening. But in their mind, they have walked up directly. They know that, that they're in their, their own range, so they can ambush you. And they also know that, that, if you don't take some kind of a step, whether it's raise your hands or some combination of move, move, get a little bit better range, move away from them, move to a side. If you don't move anywhere, they know that you cannot cover that reaction gap fast enough and they're going to land one on you. And they don't even have to be Bruce Lee fast to do that. Like an average person can be quick enough to smack you quick before you can get your hands up from hanging down at your sides. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a one of the things I advocate. Ad, advocate, sorry, not advocate. <laughs> one of the things I advocate when I'm teaching my students, and one of the things that was pointed out to me that I wasn't aware that I did, was that whenever I'm out, my eyes are roving. Mm -hmm. It was one of my students told me he approached me in the street one day with his wife, and then they walked on, and she said the have you seen his eyes they're always moving around the entire area they're looking at everything and mm -hmm. it was only after he told me that i realized yeah it's true it's it, i don't live in a paranoid state of being but i am continually threat assessing my entire environment it and to be careful it, it, absolutely but and it's it's not staring at people down it's just looking and trying to assess as you said how someone's moving how their body is what their behaviorisms are are they looking at me? Are they looking away? Are they watching my reflection in a window? You know, it's all little things like that. And uh, that's something that we build through training and through our own personal development, martial development. And we achieve that by, you know, sincere, dedicated training in the dojo and looking at how we interact with the exterior world. So mm -hmm. even in competition, uh, when I used to do karate competitions, you didn't just sit and read the book or watch the kata or, you know, look at the other area to see what was going on. Anyone with any sense would sit and watch the people roughly of their own age and grade because there's a high probability that's the ones that you were going to be going up against. And that's the same thing. You walk into the room, you threat assess the room. And I find even still when I go out, if I'm going out somewhere with my wife or if I'm going out just in general, the first thing I do when I walk into a room is take an assessment of it. You know, where's the door I've came in? Where's the nearest door? Where's the nearest cover? And I find I do it subconsciously. And as I say, it's not a paranoia thing. It's it's the backup plan. It's mm -hmm. if something goes down in here, what can I do to find a safe space? And if that involves putting tables or a booth or, you know, dare I say it, another person in between me and someone trying to have a, 
a direct face-to-face confrontation with me, particularly if they're in a group, then so be it. That's what happens. And this is all little micromanaged things that happen in the back of my mind. And I think most martial artists will do this to some extent. Uh, I think it just goes with the territory, is that you train long enough that your mind wants to continually be in a, a state of readiness. Otherwise, there's, there's no point training the way you train if you're not in a state of readiness. Almost the state of, you know, if, if we can use that Zanshin term, you know, just that mental awareness, that That's clarity. That's exactly what I was thinking when you mentioned that. And, you know, it's, it's not the mystical Zanshin where someone can up to tap you in the shoulder and you turn around and scare your friend. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just about having, in fact, I can go into a little anecdote about that. <laughs> um, it's, it's about having that general sense of awareness. And particularly, uh, I left training one day and I was walking to the bus stop to get the bus to get back to my house. And someone grabbed me from behind. Not harsh, but now I think about it, it was actually quite gentle. And they said something in my ear, but I didn't hear it. I just automatically went into beast mode. And threw them over, took them down to the ground, almost knocked them out. Then they realised it was one of my colleagues from the class that hadn't been there that day. He was coming in to see everyone at the end of class, but we finished early. Then he saw me, thought he'd come up and have a little bit of fun. And Mm. unfortunately, it backfired on him. He nearly got knocked out in the middle of the street after getting thrown over my shoulder. Mm. Uh, and, And I'm not quite sure how I look at that, as in, should I have been more mentally aware that he was there? should I have scanned the area more before walking out of the area that I was in into the larger, wider mall? Or mm-hmm. should I or should I be pleased with the way it turned out <laughs> and that what I did worked? Even mm-hmm. though the fact that a part of me thinks I should have perhaps recognized, you know, the threat recognition. And again, mm-hmm. it takes me back to, uh, I can remember lots of teachings from old karate instructor, you know, always telling you to look before you block and things like that, or look mm-hmm. before you punch, just in case it's your mum <laughs> your dad touched your yep. shoulder and you turn around and belt them in the middle of the street you know always be aware of that so uh, I believe as martial artists we, we have this constant sense of awareness and that can become a hyper awareness mm-hmm. even if we don't plan it to be so and we're always looking for those it's, it's, it's not escape measures it's not get outs from places but it's just how we can use the terrain and advantage to our advantage should anything happen and that's also the same for uh, class training and I, I, I'm sure there's many people all understand this, it, it doesn't happen so much in Aikido where you just, most people usually just pick out a training companion, but back in the days when we used to train, you had two lines, You'd, you would line up in two rows opposite each other and that would be your partner then one would move to the left, one would move to the right, so the second partner you were going to get the second one along was always the next partner you were going to get Mm-hmm. So if you could see the psychopath six down, <laughs> you would grab the white belt beside you and swap places with him. <laughs> so right. that you didn't get the cycle, but he did. <laughs> you know, because by the time you get to your third fight, yeah. that's who you're sparring with. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, situational awareness, uh, taking advantage of the room, right. making things work for you, you know, little bits like that. And even that's the kind of forward planning of how you would beat the guy with fast hands. You know, but yep. in order to do that, you have to recognize the guy with fast hands in the dojo sense. So um, I always find that sometimes a little bit of smarts uh, is the best way forward when it comes to that. Uh, and a little bit of situational awareness, being aware of what you can do within the scope of where you are. You know, not letting people get into that three foot, four foot threat range 
if you can help. You know, that, that's one thing too that that I I've definitely felt, which is, and I'm sure every dojo is like this, where they teach about my where you keep your attacker just outside of their range, where you make them take a step to you, and it's built on a solid fundamental. If you can, if if they can have to take a step, a step is a fairly slow motion compared to like a quick eye flick or something like that. And you can see it. You can usually see somebody take a step towards you. And that's the indicator that they're crossing that range. And if somebody can take that lesson and apply it in the real world, though, that's fantastic. But how often are we in a crowd where we have people that are, are within that bubble where we just trust that they're going to walk by us without us, you know, keeping an arm's length away from them? Um, you know, that's where we're reality. And I, and I think that the lesson of taking what you're doing in the dojo and doing it in real life, at least trying to, to have your mindset of, okay, in the dojo, we're dealing with physical attacks, but once you leave your mind stays, you know, stays and it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't take what you learn on the mat with you into everyday life. For those people to do, I think it's exactly like you describe it. They start to learn, well, you know, okay, I've, I had somebody in the dojo, I know how bad a choke is. So if somebody's behind me, I don't want them behind me and they'll start mm -hmm. sitting to their back to the with their back to the wall in restaurants so that they can't be approached with you know from without seeing what's coming up behind them they'll build those habits a lot of police officers and law enforcement have that same habit they'll do exactly what you're talking about they'll look okay where are the doors where are the exits they'll sit where they can watch the door just so they can get the first look on somebody that comes in because they want to profile like does this look like a scumbag does this look like a a violent drunk does this looks like somebody looking to cause trouble or is it you know like it almost always is just somebody there to to go about their business and they don't want to cause any trouble but um being the first one to spot the threat before the threat spots you i think is an important rule and I, that is a testament of what you just said of get a feel for the room and and you know don't let somebody who's a, a troublemaker eye you up before you get a chance to see them um and then i think it's you know keeping your back to the wall is making somebody take the long way to get to you if they decide to target you you can see them approach uh before their speed becomes a real problem um because once they're on top of you and you can imagine for example sitting on a, a bench waiting for a bus and and you know maybe some street person or or uh, somebody wants to shake you down, walks up and sits on the park bench right next to you. Well, now that that perfect my eye bubble has been burst. Somebody is inside of it. And maybe they're, they didn't sit next to you. Maybe they're standing in front of you. And now you're seated, they're standing, you know, which once somebody has a, a, a height advantage on you, that's a, an attempt to intimidate uh, or can be an attempt to intimidate, especially if they close distance and are standing like uncomfortably close. And I've I've gotten the, the the word from people that are that deal with folks like this is they use these things to make people feel uncomfortable, and when they <laughs> feel uncomfortable, they say, "Okay, well, here, let me give you five bucks to get out of my face because I don't want to be uncomfortable like this." Like it's a tool to <laughs> get some some money out of you, um, and you know, in my opinion, the best way to stave intimidation is to you know face and realize, well, what what could happen here, and can I handle this? And, um, you know, that might be when somebody approaches you, you stop sitting, you stand up. So you're more capable, like get in a position where you can move, you have some options, the positions that you're in that you have no options. And when, and then when somebody approaches you, 
They choose the angle, they choose the distance. All those are choices made by somebody else, not you. And, mm -hmm. and that's where I think you can kind of get started to paint it into a corner. And this can be whether you're seated or whether you're standing in a place that you can't really get out of and somebody corners you. And I'm sure everybody's had that, the yakamaniac person that kind of starts talking and they corner you and you physically can't get out without moving them. <laughs> Because they just want to tell you about their entire, you know, day or whatever, and they take that opportunity. Um, I think the same principle goes for somebody that wants to, you know, maybe use their speed or maybe use positioning to make you feel helpless. And now mm -hmm. they use that as leverage to get what they want. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things about that, and I can speak from experience, having done plenty of competitions in my youth, is when you're in an eight for example, an eight by eight meter square fighting in a competition sense, let's keep this on a, well, I, I'll, I'll move this on to competition level. You, I've, I've, I'm not the fastest moving my body. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've always been quite heavy set, kind of a hairy square, more than a, more than mm -hmm. a, a, a perfect eye-shaped, you know, Y-shaped physique. And, um, but I've, just like you were saying, I've got incredibly fast hands. Mm -hmm. uh, incredibly fast hands incredibly slow legs incredibly fast hands and when I used to spar when I used to compete it was very easy for people to attempt to maneuver me but what I found I had to do was it was to take a stand ground position and not quite circle but L-shape my movements so sure. I didn't move in a circle I would move forward and to the side in an L shape, kind of like a knight on a chessboard, forward mm -hmm. and to the side, forward and to the side. Because by taking that forward and to the side motion, I'm moving toward but away at the same time, kind of like we do in Taino Henka style movement or Irimi Tenka so style close movement. distance, but you start to take like a flank position more than a yes. front on front. Yeah, because yeah. when someone's moving fast, they want to attack you on their terms. They want mm -hmm. to move in with their weight balanced and dispersed and then throw the strike. So by shortening that distance, you're forcing them to rethink their momentum motion. And then by moving sideways, you're forcing them not just into a vertical, but a horizontal plane change, mm -hmm. which then means that I always found when I sparred like that, that they then had to bounce around me to get back into the position they wanted to be in. So they're burning calories while I'm conserving energy. And yes, mm -hmm. it's, it wasn't the nicest, most fanciest fight, but it got me through to plenty of finals. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, unfortunately, I usually met some of the guys from my own club who knew this is what I was doing and proceeded to batter me up and down the mat. But uh, that's usually how these things work. So, um, yeah, it was interesting to experience that because it's I was trying to command my movement to force them out of their comfort zone. And mm -hmm. what they were trying to do was to force me into a corner. But by mm -hmm. not allowing that cornering to happen, by trying to command my movement and my position, that took away one of their advantages, which was their fast feet. Right. Fast feet, fast movement. So even mm -hmm. if a kick get thrown, I would be moving either into the kick or away from the kick, which mm -hmm. meant it didn't have full impact. Mm -hmm. You know, and it also gave me a time to, you know, if, when moving in proper stance and proper guard, it meant that the, the, the point of impact that their mind had set up has actually changed. So half the time, even a kick, if it connected with me in a competition sense, wasn't a proper enough technique to be granted a score or a point. Mm -hmm. 
but it then gave me something to grab and hold on to. You know, which then yeah, allowed me to brings up, I think, two really things. solid fundamentals. And the first one being a moving target is harder to hit. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't say you have to be a fast moving target, just that you're yeah. moving. And I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not talking like molasses slow as that's easier to hit. But if you're moving around and adjusting, it makes somebody who's quick have to readjust as their targeting computers trying to figure out how to land a shot yeah. on a moving target, especially when it only takes unpredictably. It's just, yeah, it's just a couple of degrees. That's all you need. Right. Mm-hmm. A couple of degrees. Uh, and as I say, I wasn't lumbering about, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, Frankenstein's monster. I was on my toes. I was still quite light, but I was able to move and adjust speed, not as fast as my opponent. But that's why I always broke down the faster moving opponents because they want to get in fast, get out first, get you before they get them. Particularly yeah. ones with the legs, you know, fast moving legs, because right. they perceive the longer reach as a benefit. Which it is, and but they're wanting me to stop moving so they can make that target. And that's the thing. Every every fighter, regardless of whether it's self-defense or in a sport ring, wants the gift of having their opponent stop for a second and pause and just stay in that place. That lets mm-hmm. the targeting computer lock in and fire the missile without having to, to readjust mm-hmm. range, footwork, and angle. Um, and so that is something to keep in mind. Even if you're talking with somebody approaches you, you can move around a little bit, shift your feet, change your position. Don't let them eye you up like a statue that's in a static position and they get to choose where they move to, to have their, their better angle. And you can do this subtly. You don't have to look like a fighter or like Muhammad Ali, you know, bouncing around it to, to create those angles. The angles are still there. It's how you get to them. And you can subtly, you know, do that. You can look like a slightly fidgety person uh, you know, that wants to look around and, and do so, change your feet position, um, things like that. And in doing so, you can control your angle uh, to your opponent. And one of the one of the fundamentals I love teaching all of my people is, to, is that if you are standing right in front of somebody, you're in the most dangerous piece of real estate you can be. Like they have all of their weapons and they can fully see you when, they're, when you're standing right in front of them. It's harder when you're beside them. They have to turn to look at you. The best place is behind them where you, they cannot see you. But the farther you go around, the better your position gets. It's safer. Um, yes. They have to turn and co- they have to take the long way to get to you, not the quick way. And um, these things can be practiced, you know, on a day-to-day conversational kind of sense without even letting anybody know you're doing it. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the other things that that is very helpful is that your sense of touch is, and I'm sure you know this, but it's for, for everybody listening, is so much more sensitive to, to movement than your eye yeah. is. So if you move to the side and I set my hand on your arm, like, hey, how are you doing? What can I do for you? I can feel your body. If you tense up a little bit or you start to move, like that sends a super strong single. And my eyes don't need to watch your, your hand. You know, if you reach, like to try to get something out of your belt, like a knife mm-hmm. or into a pocket, you can feel I can it. feel that. I mean, it's, it's like a neon sign lights up. Yeah. And, and it's a it bouncers use that all the time for an escort because they know it can feel right away if somebody gets tense and they they want to try to pounce. Um, mm-hmm. And the second point I wanted to bring up too was, and this this covers back to the sport realm, which is quick fighters have the advantage of quickness or speed, but they also have the disadvantage that it takes a lot of energy to to be quick all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you make them constantly adjust and they adjust quickly and explosively, 
that's that's pretty taxing. Now the downside is that light uh, rye people tend to be, have a lot of they're so th they're they're thinner because they don't have a lot of muscle bulk. They tend to, to not gas out as quickly. You make somebody who's big move around a lot, and there's so much blood running through all of that muscle, the mm -hmm. heart's got to pump it. They will exhaust faster. So I think like what you found is move deliberately. You don't have to try to be explosive or quick, but by constantly moving, you can make somebody who's jumpy burn a lot of energy up trying to always readjust their range and, and change angles and use their quickness. Um, and you kind of use their quickness against them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Least, you know, again, from a sports standpoint. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's one of... Again, you'll hear me ask, say this a lot. One of the things I like to point out to people is that um, just because someone can move in and strike fast doesn't mean that they can retreat and defend fast. A right. fast attacker is not necessarily a fast defender. And in fact, some people move faster than they can think. And that's a real danger because they have one focused attack, one focused thought. And that doesn't mean that they can then adjust fast to a change mm -hmm. in situation. And that becomes very, very important, particularly when to deal with the question, how do you deal with someone with fast hands? You make them think faster than their hands go. So you right. constantly have to get them to adjust their thought process so that their brain is moving faster than their ability to control. Yeah, you, provi the, you the provide them strikes. too much input too that they much have to process. Yeah. That they have to keep trying to process and change and adapt. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I teach things like distance and spacing in my eye, things like that, those types of uh, concepts. I always tell my students to imagine there's an isosceles triangle coming out from your chest mm -hmm. that's pointing through your center line. If you can enable that through your opponent's center line while seeing their triangle off at an angle, then you have adjusted enough that they're offside. The side that would produce a hook, for example, now has maybe an extra inch or two to travel. Now, that doesn't sound like much. If we're talking about a fast punch, we're only talking about maybe a tenth, eighth of a oh, yeah. second. Like extra a game time. of centimeters, really. But it makes the difference in both forcing them to adjust the range and then giving you the chance, that extra couple of millimeters just to get a hand up to deflect. Mm -hmm. It's all buying you time. And right. that's the most important thing. And in a street sense, time becomes one of the most important factors. Because if someone's going to attempt to put you down fast, time is your ally. Because the longer that goes on, the more likelihood there is. Obviously, if it's a group of eight guys coming at you, you know, time is not your ally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but if you're looking to try and break up or avoid the fight or get away from it, or as you say, the solo guy comes up, starts hovering over you, decides to make things, decides to make you uncomfortable, puts in a threatening presence. The longer that extends, the greater probability there is that someone else is going to be there. Someone's going to see something. Someone else may mm -hmm. choose to act on your behalf as well. So time starts to become a factor for you because anyone who comes to you wanting to either assault or rob you or whatever, they want it over fast. Nobody wants this to be prolonged, particularly people who want your money. They want your money, give me your money, or, you know, just give me your money. They don't want to be standing there for three minutes debating how much money whether they want it in small change or large change, uh, you, you know, whether they'll take a check. Uh, they don't want to debate all that. They just want in and out fast mm -hmm. because they know themselves that in the act of committing an illegal action, whether it's an assault or a robbery, that the longer this goes on, the greater the probability is that something's going to go against them.
And that stands to reason for everything. It's the same when you're sparring. It's the same when you're in competition. It's the same when we're training in the dojo. Is a, if, if we're doing line work where you've got one attack and you after another, you know, like a good Bruce Lee movie, one person attacks after another, after another. Uh, I always try to throw a little span on the works mm-hmm. by saying to someone, I'll pick a random person line and just tell them, don't try and hit them with a basic strike, try and tackle them because that's going to hold them up for three seconds. Right. And if, if the, and I'll say to the guy behind them, if you see him getting held up, start coming in, you know, right. and then I'll say to the one behind him, okay, just, just keep piling it on, piling it on. And it's not there to trick people, it's just there to give them a sense of fresh perspective that, you know, when you're being attacked and the dojo and, and this concept of what we're training in, time becomes the greatest factor here. So they have to take the person who first started to slow time down for them and use them to their advantage either by trying to apply something like Sankyo or Ikyo, keeping everybody else away, slowing down the attacking process, basically mm-hmm. creating a, a, a blockage and a pile-up of bodies behind them as best they can, uh, because eventually somebody's going to get through. Mm-hmm. So that's when we've moved on from, in the dojo, when we do that type of training, we've moved on from simply trying to be faster than everyone else into trying to be smarter, mentally faster than everyone else in the room, because you can't outfight eight people but you can right. outthink the majority of them and create an opening for yourself mm-hmm. yeah that's true you know and the way you describe that you know what leapt to my mind was also providing a structure that they have to go around and you know yep. this is where i like jeff thompson's you know fence principle where your arms are up even if you just have your arms kind of up or you're you know scratching your head even doing something innocuous like this gives gives yourself some kind of obstacle they have to go around to get your head like the path the pathways to your head are limited and you can do it just by looking casual there's a bunch of different ways to do it you know the the jack benny thing where you're covering your neck and and the mark and and uh you use that with positioning your movement and you start to know and this is why it's to me it's so important to know the strikes and punches that are that people use in real life because then mm-hmm. you start to understand the angles and the paths that those things use and how to mitigate those and not allow the easy, fast stuff to get to you. It has to go, it has to take a big wide arc to get around whatever it is you put yeah. up um, yeah. in front of you. And then Absolutely. it takes the practice it's... to make it not look like you're, you know, in martial arts stances, you kind of <laughs> hide it with some, you know. You can be subtle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can be subtle but about the it. principle's still there. You know, you, you mm-hmm. don't give them that short path to you. Yeah, it's I, I remember a guy I used to train with doing some boxing, and um, he passed on a few words of wisdom from his old coach, which was that uh, the reason you see a lot of boxers with their gloves here is because mm-hmm. it covers the area they want it to cover. He said, because you can tone your lower half mm-hmm. in the ring to take... You can condition that. He says you can't condition bone. Right. <laughs> so if we take a hit to the head, you, there's no amount of conditioning is going to help you out. You can't sit yeah. and smash your head off walls and the vein hope it's going to make <laughs> right. you take a punch. You know, it's going to make you take a punch better. But you can drop medicine balls onto people and stuff like that and help them condition and get mm-hmm. used to taking impact. Yep. You, you can't do that with a testament your head. to that. I don't know. Have you ever heard of uh, Henry Rollins told the story about when he was in high school and and uh, he was pretty weak, you know, thin kid. And, you know, his science teacher befriended him and kind of became like a father figure to him. And 
you know, he said, Hey, you know, can you teach me how to lift weights? And I want to kind of toughen up. And, you know, of course this was back in the day as he would have been thrown in jail for this, you know, now, but uh, he said, all right, you know, I'm going to, I'll show you how to, how to, you know, lift the iron and, and we're going to condition you up. And one of the things he did would he just, as he walked by Rollins, he just punch him right in the gut. And he said the first time, Oh, I got folded up. I laid on the ground. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. But he said he would just every once in a while, unbeknownst to him he'd walk up and just hit him right in the right in the stomach and he said it didn't take more than you know a month or two and he'd hit me and i'd well you know look at him and i'd walk you just get used Mm -hmm. to that being hit now there are i think exceptions there's no way you can uh condition yourself against a liver knockout there's no way Mm. that you're going to condition the mark not to start to knock the wind out of you if you get nailed Mm. right in that right spot but it's not like you're like you got a glass torso where anywhere you get hit you're going to, you're going to fold up on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right. It, it can be conditioned that way. Um, and one thing, one word of warning, I've seen a lot of martial artists do this. They'll barehanded. They'll keep their hands up here. Yeah. <laughs> if you punch the hand and get punched with your own fist, it won't help you. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It, it in doesn't, fact, it just makes it easier because your opponent can hit you, hit your hand from farther away. You've given them that much extra distance that they can yeah. be away from you and still hit you with your own fist. Yeah. So it's uh, very much a glove specific. Uh, oh yeah. Completely. Guard. And you've got to remember the, the gloves themselves are the guards, you know, they're big, right. thick gloves. 16 ounce gloves are big, you know, they make mm-hmm. your hands quite chunky. So right. uh, yeah, it's uh, the, that's part of your guard. Uh, and, <laughs> so if you're you doing know, that, just realize you. don't, don't you take on yeah. a guard. That's more of a pugilism guard because that's what it was meant for is bare knuckle. That's exactly what it's for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's um, the tool it was built for. I've seen people in courses do that where they brought their hands up and then someone kicked it and it took yep. them back. Right, right. Why are you hitting yourself? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, it's crazy. And um, but yeah, one of the things that we do develop, although you can't condition your head, what we do develop is a tolerance to the pain or the the shock. Right. And that's that's another thing. Flash. You mm-hmm. get used to that so that um, it doesn't override and overwhelm your senses. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things that when you train in a competitive manner mm-hmm. or whether you train it in a, a kind of a dedicated fashion within whatever your respective dojo is, uh, that's why I, I always feel that the soft aspect of technique is there it's great for development for technical skills and that kind of thing but you still need to practice a hard up development so that if in the event that you are in a position where you have to use your skills if you are going to take a strike if you do take a strike if you trip you fall you land on your back you're not mm-hmm. automatically panicked and that right. the wind goes out you the fight goes out you the shock gets to you and mm-hmm. uh I've got, I've, for, you know, ever since I was born, I've had slightly reduced visibility in my left eye. And the amount of kicks to the head I used to take in that side was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I remember in the early days of competition, uh, the first one, yeah, that almost took me out of the game. I just wasn't prepared for it from someone who was, because when you're training in the dojo, nobody's trying to hurt you. When you're training in competition, nobody's trying to hurt you. But if they can take you out with a good hit, they would have done that. It was the 80s. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, people. Yes, we were padded, but come on, it was like five millimeter thick uh, padding. It, it was useless. Um, so yeah, uh, the first hit you ever took to the head, you remembered it. And um, I remember a couple of competitions on, you know, going out the first round, hurting, sore, 
you know, feeling a bit sorry for myself. But a couple of couple of years later, when I was competing, uh, I've seen me competing with half an eye closed and lumps on my head that had the stitching of the old fabric mitts in them, and I'm still fighting on. You know, something. And it's not because I was a hard man or anything like that. I was a big tough guy. It's just because you you get used to the impact, you get used to the shock. You know, and mm-hmm. that's a big thing that it, it's important when people ask about realism, how they can train realistically. Mm-hmm. Again, I like to say to them ask your opponent to put in proper throws, ask your opponent to put in proper threat for you. It's not about techniques that work on the street. It's how you cope with the situation that arises. Because yeah, you are going to get... training almost is, is getting used to not being mentally... It's like a response training. Yes, yeah. I don't allow yourself to become mentally compromised when you take a strike. You know, mm-hmm. if it knocks you out cold, that's completely different. Mm-hmm. There's not, not a damn thing you can do about that. You know, if you're caught unawares, under the jaw, boom, then you go, nothing you can do about that. There's no amount of training to prepare for that. Yeah. But as opposed to someone coming up and putting a glance and blow in, instead of hold, running away holding your face, you know, mm-hmm. a, a seasoned martial artist is used to taking the knocks. You've just got to look at the guys in MMA to see it happening. You, you know, mm-hmm. they take a severe amount of punishment, but they don't stop. You, right. you know, they, they still try to do what they're there to do. They're trying to get the job done. It's the same with boxers. That's how they can take all this. Mm-hmm. And that, yes, it's pretty brutal. But it does serve a purpose, and that purpose is it prepares you to take that initial impact, that initial shock. Uh, and if we all think back in an Aikido sense to when we took our first uh, over-the-top Kotagaish fall, mm-hmm. and you landed all wrong, and you landed half on your front, you probably punched your teeth, your yeah. legs came together in that horrible way that makes you feel sick for hours. And, you know, your, your knee probably collided off the back of your head somehow and you don't know how it happened. And you just won't die in that moment because you just yeah. feel terrible, <laughs> you know, compared to... Like how you got run as, over by a truck. Oh, yeah, yeah. Compared to how, as a senior grade, you can take the impact and also the shock on the wrist. You learn to live with the shock on the wrist and the mm-hmm. shock of the impact on the floor and the conditioning that gives you. That's all really important stuff because it's one of the things that people don't realise about Aikido is okay, do take a tremendous amount of punishment. A lot of it looks staged, a lot of it looks fake, but every time you hit the floor, you're basically asking gravity not to smash you with the planet and you're trying to roll with it and get back up. And that takes a lot of, that puts a lot of impact and emphasis on the body. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether it's core strengthening, tension, uh, you know, learning to manoeuvre your body safely, controlling your body during flight and momentum to strike the ground in a safer way, it requires a certain amount of acrobatics and contortionism at the same time, you know, trying to save yourself from that, which is really, really important. And these are all part of the Aikido conditioning that is often missed. So it's, you know, I'm I glad t- you brought that up because this is something I think that is a topic not really mentioned much. And that is, you know, within, within most Aikido training, we all acknowledge that we, we want to protect our ukes. We don't want to bust people up. And, and that's yeah. a good way to make your, your training sustainable but oftentimes we can blunt it so much that a just a light throw can can chuck oh, a yeah. nuke into their no. kemi and <laughs> in my opinion as a nage really what you want to do is find where that edge how can you bring your uke down just to the point if you went any farther their their fall would be horrific even with good ukemi skills and then you get mm-hmm. to that edge and let them go but you're in full control all the way from the beginning first contact kazushi that taisabaki you you get their body you set up your thrower technique or whatever it is you get to that point where 
now you've got full control and that's where you you that's where you draw your line but you're so familiar with that that you know if i went just a little farther this is going to be mm -hmm. really and that can be how much pressure you put on yeah. Nikki. can be you know how dramatic your your tenshinage throw is or your shionage you know perfect example of that is you have to have mercy for shionage if you mm -hmm. you get that and you put you go past that line your your uke is going to be feeling it um oh yeah hard. yeah so uh but not to go so light that that you just uh suffice with i'm going to get kazushi and i can kind of set up my waza and then i'll just kind of let somebody float away um you know mm -hmm. that's and where i think that that good edge really needs to needs to be explored yeah that that takes us into another part of this discussion where again if i can Actually, let me to with one quick thing that from, sure. from just a moment ago before we jump on and that is you talked about the you know taking the shock and there are many instances of self-defense situations where people get stabbed maybe once or repeatedly with a knife and they keep going it's not like in the movies where somebody gets stabbed and it's like you know they stabbed a tire on a car and it just goes flat where the person just collapses down and they do their dramatic last words and then they you know out they go we see these things and, and our subconscious mind has a tough has a difficult time discerning reality from fantasy because mm -hmm. our eyes see it and that's that's nobody's real fault that's just how the human brain functions and so when we see something that looks plausible on a movie screen or tv screen we think oh that must be what it's like to be stabbed with a knife well in reality there are a few stabs that can take you out instantly but not yeah. many chances are and because people have survived getting shot multiple times or getting stabbed multiple times or both i think uh jim Bowie had an incident where he was shot and stabbed and uh, he was fighting a bigger guy and still killed him, but barely survived himself because he took so much damage. Um, yeah. But these things can happen. And, and it, there's a factor of mental toughness, I think, but there's also adrenaline plays into that as well. Adrenaline is trying to get you past that shock and to keep you from, keep you in a fight and keep you to uh, going so that you have a chance of surviving. But if, you're, if your mind gives up, the adrenaline really can't help you. No, no, it'll stop. It just stops. It's it's um, it's very That's akin to training is against that mind paralysis. It's to train that fighter's or warrior's mind. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's one of the most important things that we can do because it's we we don't know. No one knows how they're going to react in any given situation. Mm -hmm. The best we can hope to do is to control ourselves and control our reaction to whatever's happening round about us and not to succumb as best we can. As you say, if you get hit with that one shot that, you know, say someone pulled a knife, went straight through, caught in the chest, pierced a ventricle, or, you know, cut a femoral artery, it's out, you're done. And there's nothing you can do about that. But uh, when we train, it's, um, we try to, firstly, as an Aikido club, we all do tanto work. The first thing I tell people about tanto work is it's nothing to do with using a knife. It's all about learning distance. It's all about understanding the awkwardness of what you can achieve if someone is holding something and also mm -hmm. to show them just how bloody dangerous it is because we don't do the big, you know, the, I used to call it the Star Wars figure 
tanto swing. You know how the arm only moved in one direction. You know, yeah. it's just this big yeah. heave thing. We do short slashes, short stabs, pokes, all that kind of thing, just to prove to the fact that, you know, if you're in a situation and someone pulls a knife, you're going to get hurt, you're going to get cut if you choose to pursue this line of continuance. You know, if someone pulls a knife and asks you for the wallet. That's about the yeah, only yeah, thing. That's it. The only thing. Yeah, that's not it. Not to yeah. get cut or stab. Absolutely. Uh, get the hell out of there because it's uh, you're not going to win that. It's going to weigh you down. And all it takes is a cut across your knuckles and you can't use your hand. All it takes is a cut across your arm and you've, you know, just sever two tendons in your arm and that's your, or one tendon in your arm, you're, you're, it's out. It's, it's about bringing that reality in. When we do tanto work, we split it into two factors. One is that, one is about the more technical aspect of manoeuvring someone while keeping them at distance from you. And that's, that's the lesson they're learning there. And the other one is just look how absolutely ridiculous this is. Don't think for one minute if someone pulls a knife on you that you're going to be safe. And that's the nights that we've not done it for years. You go and get people to wear an old shirt, go in with a, a felt tip pen and just start going to town on people. You know, it's like the Mark of Zorro. And everyone comes out with hundreds of cuts all over there. And, you know, if you've not got a cut across your, a pen mark across your nose or across your throat, you're doing really well. It just shows how dangerous that situation is. And it's to break that fallacy of, you know, you're doing a martial arts, so if someone attacks you in the street and pulls a knife, you'll be safe. I'll show you how to be safe. That's absolute BS. Do you know what I mean? It's it's like, you know, it doesn't happen. Yeah, we could do probably a whole happen. show on, the, on the, the, the snake oil peddlers that are out there selling the magic of, you know, oh, you can, yeah. you know, this is what martial arts can do. And, you know, oh, you can be safe from all kinds of weapons and, you know, I mean, how many fast gun disarms have we seen? Not to say that you can't disarm somebody yeah. with a pistol. It is possible, but the yeah, way it's presented is such parlor trickery. But um, every single one of them requires that Star Wars straight arm that doesn't bend, <laughs> you know, at extreme range. You know, no one holds a pistol like that. No one, no, no one with any way of training, everyone's fired a pistol. You know, you fire a pistol with a straight arm like that, you're going to break your thumb. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Just with a recoil. It's silly. So it's, yeah. And as you say, that's all the kind of snake oil stuff. It, it is, unfortunately, it's all there and it's it's still there and it's never going to go away. And, you know, it's uh, it's very odd when, when you see that represented. Because when we're talking about fast hands, uh, when you also look at, if you look at any of the guys that do Cali work, that's fast hands with knives. <laughs> you oh, yeah. know, that's super fast stuff. Because what I've seen and I love and I love I've got some great friends that are in the, the Kali Eskrima world uh, between the Filipino martial arts and the and Jeet Kune Do guys. They're like yeah. speed free. They, they're the. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's funny because whenever I've seen instructors come and teach at my friendship seminars or at, at other you know cross training type events, they their hands move fast. They show everything fast. They talk fast. I mean, it's it's like they they're in running two times normal speed. <laughs> um, yeah, way too much monster energy drink. Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> it, it's just kind of funny. I mean, I don't condemn them for it. God bless them. But to me, that yeah. shows that total dedication to we need to be faster, which is yeah. great if you've got the physical trait. But you know, what if you have a student that they're just not inherently fast? They don't have inherently fast hands or inherent quickness can you make your art fit them because it's a smart art, not just one that's built on raw exactly. speed, yeah. raw quickness. Mm -hmm. The same mm -hmm. way that, that, you know, can you 
would you say when you look at an average wrestler, these guys are all ripped, they're big. Can you say, well, you can be a wrestler at 135 pounds? Mm-hmm. Well, if you learn the principles, yes, you can, but it doesn't necessarily yeah. mean you get against a 200 pound wrestler that you're going to prevail because we know body size is a factor. And I would it's say a factor, yeah. factor too, but there are ways to mitigate both and try to use somebody's traits against them and you know yeah, absolutely. Big, make them move around a lot you know because again mm-hmm. that blood starts flowing especially if there's a bit of fear in their system because and this affects doesn't matter what body size or body type you are when you start to get anxious and afraid and you start breathing shallow you start getting a little your brain gets a little starved of oxygen your mm-hmm. blood is your heart's got to pump a lot of blood because it excites you when you get excited your, your adrenaline starts to dump a little bit that is very exhausting and it mm-hmm. if you know that's what's happening and you can stay calm you can let that other person almost exhaust themselves just by standing there or just by adjusting their movement to you um you know i had a, i had uh uh, no, a friend of mine that actually was playing with this pressure and tension. And he's a sport fighter, but he's very at a very high level. And he got to the point where he just never let his opponent back out into that safe my range. Every time mm-hmm. he, his opponent felt a little anxious, he'd back out and then he'd start to close in. And he never let him breathe. And he mm-hmm. said after about three or four minutes, the guy just turned around and threw up. Like there was yeah. so much tension yeah. that he that was kept in his body that he could never, he could, was, didn't allow to be released. It, he just sent his whole physiology into, into shock pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. granted and- that's a sport type of a, of a situation, but you have the same thing in a self-defense in the fact that you have high level of emotion. Oftentimes there's fear. Adrenaline's probably going to be a factor, especially mm-hmm. as somebody who's on, on a runaway, like they're enraged or they're Maybe even they've approached you to, to, to steal your wallet and they're afraid they're going to get caught. Their heart's pounding, their yeah. breath is short. Like these factors exist in both realms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. And it's, it's possible for you to increase your own adrenaline state without losing the, the capability you get from that. For example, someone who's raging or someone who's... Um, hyperactive in terms of as you, as you just put someone wants to approach you steal something from you and they're in a highly agitated state while their adrenaline's flowing when we train we learn to channel that adrenaline surge whether mm-hmm. consciously or subconsciously and i'm not going into the mystical stuff here i'm not saying that a certain room's raising my heart rate and lowering my heart rate like you know <laughs> like and what was it James Coburn uh, Flynn and with Flynn and all that you know he used to meditate lower his heart rate uh, all those kind of James Bond spoofs I'm not talking about that stuff it's just pure and simply that we can choose to exert or expand our <clears throat> our focus in a controlled manner and that becomes really really important and that ties me into that other thing that I was going to raise is that and you just touched on it there with your friend you were talking about does the combat of work is, is that um when you're faced with fast hands, you know, a, the initial proper defense, then understanding that even fast hands have an optimum range. Right. They're only fast within, and, and this is why it's good to practice against, you know, jabs, hooks, uppercuts, straight punches, practice against everything in your practice. Don't stick to traditional showmen, yokomen. That's not going to help you at all. No one attacks you like that unless it's just a giant Star Wars figure that's going to 
with only yeah. that one arm. It's it, no one attacks you like that, uh, but you, you can get attacked with various different melee styles. You know, study a little bit, as you said, of pugilism. Study a little bit of things like Wing Chun, which is very close to pugilism. It forms the centre line, the same V shape, the same hand positions almost. You know, have a look at these arts and understand them because every single strike will have an optimum effect point. And as Aikidoka, what we excel at is moving our body. Mm -hmm. We don't move the target. We'll not pull the head back. We want to keep our body in a good, strong, stable position and move the target as the whole body. And that doesn't have to be fast. But by doing that, we then shut down the capability for that, that fast hands. Yes, they might be fast, but they're only fast within an optimum range. When we get in and shut that down, they've lost that optimum range. And you might take some digs to the ribs. You might take a couple of elbows to the ribs. That's still, a, and that's one thing to be aware of. Fast hands tend to come from fast hip movement, which also tends to allow the elbows to be brought in quite quickly as well. So you have right. to be aware of once you get past hand range, you're in elbow range, you're in head range, you know, mm -hmm. and understanding where these threats can come from. And mm -hmm. it's not, it's not rocket science. It's just understanding that if you're facing with a fast opponent who throws a flurry of punches at you, we also have threat assessment in optimal threat range. Mm -hmm. You can, and you see this in karate competitions, guys who have set motions, you know, front punch, reverse punch, hurricane, hurricane, gyakuzuki, reverse punch, up for a, a high roundhouse kick, mawashigiri. And they do that same set of six, seven movements every time. Bum, 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 bum sharp as the edge of a razor so sharp but if mm -hmm. that's not within contact range it's just a flurry of motion the threat from it isn't there mm -hmm. so they will try and maneuver you back they what they want to do is hit you with the kick the hands are just there to force you back and hope you're going to make a mistake try and capture your attention and then it's the kick that's going to do the damage sure. it's the final part of it and it's understanding that the flurry the fast hands isn't necessarily the final outcome. The fast hands might just be the distraction for something else. So by closing that and shutting that down, not by preempting it, but by controlling your environment, and as you say, putting something between you and them, getting in close like your friend was doing when he was talking about sport work, getting in and shutting them down, it means that they've got to rapidly change tact. Yeah. And making them and respond to you. Not just and make them respond. Free reign to, to line up their, their approach. Yeah, don't um, be a heavy bag. Don't just stand there. You know, be able to move. In fact, <laughs> some heavy bags even hit back. I'm, I'm, there's tons of fail videos on YouTube for guys doing things oh, with sure. the big bob bag and it, it yeah. basically knocks them out when they're not looking. And <laughs> that's how easy it is for fast hands to be broken. You know, fast mm -hmm. attacks to be broken up. It just takes that one incident. Mm -hmm. uh, to capture it. And also what we have to be aware of when we talk about the Zanshin and the Ma'ai is that one person coming at you who's throwing fast hands might be a distraction for the guy standing behind you. Right. So it, sometimes it's not just about him. Sometimes he's just the one making the noise, making the movement. You know, mm -hmm. going into a boxing stand, throwing a couple of flurries, you trap to engage with him and someone hits you over the back of the head with a two before. You know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yep. It can happen. And that's well, where you can't be locked in. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things that I that that I think play into this is also the idea that, of course, if the timing you always approach is reactionary, 
you are very concerned about the guy with fast hands because you have to keep up with his speed. You have to recognize the attack, make the decision, execute, and actually get your hands or whatever response you're going to get in the time it takes him to do his, his one quick attack. Mm -hmm. To me, that shows the limitation of that uh, Gonosen timing, the reactive mm -hmm. approach. And I'm a big fan of the proactive because one of the ways to, to deal with somebody's fast hands is to take their base out from underneath them, get their body tipping and responding to being interfered with. And if you mm -hmm. make the first move, and, and I was taught that the principle called Shoto Seizu controlled the first move. I don't know if that's a widespread, like if all Aikidoists are, are exposed to that, I mm -hmm. think probably a lot yeah. are. But if you haven't, like what stops you from making an intercepting movement before this speed freak unloads on you like it's mm -hmm. a lot safer to take their posture quickly and you know you can do so without having to hurt them before they launch that quick attack because yeah. once they yeah. once their their body's destabilized they can be quick but they will have no power you can take yeah. their ability really to do harm to you away from them by mm -hmm. well, controlling their body absolutely yeah it's it's fundamental to the style of aikido i do tristan is that irame is king uh, it doesn't matter what your opponent's doing, get in there. Because right. if you don't, you can't control a combat by stepping back. And mm -hmm. good Aikido will only, yes, you can rotate. Yes, you can circle. You know, mm -hmm. you can spin. But there's very little, uh, I'm trying to think what they call it now. It's, uh, is it ten, tension? It's called where you step back and control. You know, you get the big loping swing coming in and people will step back from left posture into right posture and they'll blend tension, tin can, uh, tin can and tension. I'm sure that's what they call it. Uh, but uh, I, I don't advocate that at all because, again, coming from a combat background, coming from a fighting background, from a different martial art and from judo as well, let's not forget that. And also the gleamer that I do as well. If, as soon as you step back, they're just going to keep coming. And right. I, again, we used to do a little exercise in the class, particularly in the kids' class. Uh, the kids used to love this, where I'd line two kids up, and I do it with the adults. In fact, I might even do this on Friday night at the class. Have one facing forwards, have one facing backwards, and get them to run the length of the hall and see who wins. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the guy going backwards is not going to... Yeah, they can move fast, but they, they, they can't look. They can't see where they're going. Their body weight's off. But the person going forward doesn't even have to try. Of course they're going to win because you can move forwards faster than you can backwards. Mm -hmm. So it's... This brings into the next part of how to deal with the fast hands, which is understanding the psychology of body movement and reaction. And we actually did an exercise on this in the class the other week where I had one of my students and I told them to stand there and move when he felt threatened so it was about three four feet away and i took a step in took a step in i brought my hands up a little held them at my chest i dropped my knees a little held them at my chest i could see him getting uncomfortable and then i just stared i gave him the stare and that's when he, he started to twitch and i said to him do you know what you reacted to and one person behind him laughed he went oh because <laughs> he saw it the wee fellow that reacted he didn't know why he reacted. He just knew he suddenly felt uncomfortable. He'd seen the intent in my eyes that I was about to wade in on him. And he moved back, but he didn't know how he moved back. And the fellow behind him saw it, and he laughed because he could see the intent and saw how he reacted to it. 
uh, and the people off to the side couldn't see it. So everyone was really confused as to why it took me all that walking in, an extra couple of steps, bringing my hands up, trying to kind of act a little bit, a little bit threatening. But what did it was the eye movement, because at that point, on a primal level, he knew this is going to get real and he's going for me. And that's when he started to feel uncomfortable. And we can recognize that. And we touched on this earlier, that sense of intuitive response to threat. You know, you pick up a rock, you, you don't get this over here so much, but you pick up a rock, there's a snake under it. Your first instinct's to back off from it. You don't suddenly think, oh, that's a lovely snake, I'm going to grab that. You know, unless you're one of these crazy guys on the survival programs, you know, mm. <laughs> uh, one of these mad ranger types. But um, the, the majority reaction is we recognise a threat. You know, it's the same when you see a flame. You know, if, if you see a fire, your natural mm -hmm. instinct's not to go up and put your hand in it. Right. You know, you recognise it as a threat. With people, we recognise threat. Mm -hmm. And you know, therefore that, we can that react to that. The best way I've heard it, that you've struck on something. I love your description of it. And it's something that's always bothered me about how I see a lot of Aikido is throw their atemis, where they look down or they look away and they kind of wave a hand up in somebody's face. <laughs> like if you're going to sell that, that you are threatening their face, you have to have exactly that eye contact that you're talking about. You have to look like a threat. You have to mm -hmm. look where that hand would be going if it was an actual strike and you have to sell them on the fact that they're absolutely like if you're going to the, the eyes or the face, you're threatening their face. And you do that with the eyes and the look. That's what sells it. It's not the hand coming up. No, it's, no, it's not. It's, you show that intent. Yeah. And I think that you just described it perfectly. And that's yeah. what I thought of because anyone who's ever so many times when some people wave their hand up and they expect yeah. okay to respond and like no, you yeah. gotta sell it, buddy. You gotta sell that that's a real danger. Yeah. You should, uh, it's not particularly nice, but you, you, you can do this to someone. I've, I had that on a course where you used to get the guy come in with a hand. And I still, mm -hmm. at one point, I just jumped in and slapped it and went, high five. <laughs> but the <laughs> noise, the impact, it went boom. And he walked away holding his hand like that under his arm. I, I felt my hand was stinging. It must have really hurt because I had my whole body weight behind it and I saw it coming. I went, high five. And I just jumped up with this big squeaky voice. And uh, yeah. it, it got a hell of a laugh, but boy, did that did that boy not ever try and attack me like that again. Yeah, it's that intent. If you've ever had someone angry with you who's thrown a punch, they don't look placid. And, right. Yeah, <laughs> late, there's a, the there's a focus, there's an anger. You know, they're right in your face and you're getting, and they're right at you. And that's how I attack in the class. Now, everyone knows I'm not going to hurt them much. Uh, everyone knows I don't. <laughs> but the way we train as well is if, if you don't move, I'm going to hit you in the head. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just to teach that if you don't move, I'm going to connect. And it's not going to hurt, but it's, it's going to smart. This is a mistake that, that a lot of martial artists make when they get into that the safe dojo realm they drift away from what making their attackers look as close to what a real attacker is going to look like. So you get used to it. It's not going to surprise you or shock you when it yeah, actually. Yeah, that's the thing. And that's that shock. Again, that's the thing that puts you on your heels. That's what someone relies on is you mm -hmm. reacting to that aggression. So and, and unless you train to recognize and deal with that, you're mm -hmm. never going to be prepared for it. You, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's, it's like, you know, it's I, I, again, 
over, over in the US, I know a lot of guys don't drive stick shift. Uh, there's a lot of automatics. Can you imagine learning in an automatic, then turning up for your test and it's a stick? It's right. that's it. Oh, shock, you know. Yep. <laughs> it's and, the same principle. The All it takes is a momentary uh, exposure to get that that slight shock. In fact, um, you know, I had a, a, a test, mid-belt test, I think it was a uh, Sankyu test just a couple of months ago, like mm -hmm. a month or two ago. And and I took the place of Uke for a, for a portion of this test. And I turned on the heat. I When I attacked, I had the, the bulged eyes and, you know, my student had seen some of that before, but this was a test. So I turned on the intensity and put all the stuff together. And, the, you know, in a normal class, you don't get as much of that that vicious eye look intensity part, but I wanted to see how he reacted and to give him that exposure of when he, he was already nervous because you know you want to do well on your test. You know he already was kind of walking that edge of, of being nervous, and now he saw what that looked like. And he, he told me afterwards, he's like, "I'm really glad that this happened and that that you showed me that because now I've got a feel for what that will feel like when I'm already under tension." And mm -hmm. uh, you know it's. I think it's an invaluable experience for any martial artist. If, if self-defense yeah. is part of what you want to do, this is not a luxury. It's a crucial, a yeah. crucial. Component. And absolutely. And unless you're dealing with a literal psychopath or a nutcase, someone who does not show emotion on the face, mm -hmm. there's going to be a brief moment where you as one human being to another recognizes that they're about to go. Right, and you can see it in the shoulders. That, that's the part the that's really movement. hard to simulate in a dojo. Yeah, that emotional yeah. content—you can't. It's hard to simulate crazy or enraged, or you can kind of try, but it's it's going to be fake. It, you can always no, it's fake. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard. But you can simulate focused attack, and that's for me one of the the most important fundamental things. Because if you can react to that moment of focused intent, mm -hmm. then you're already ahead of the fast hands and, and you've got the repertoire of understanding what even though you understand the mindset now you've seen the rage or you've seen the crazy or whatever it is now you know what the body is you know what the body can do you know mm -hmm. you're used to seeing how is it going to come at me um by the way i wanted to mention because you, you put this really well of your eyes look at that face that you want to hit like when you're angry that's how it works i know with trained fighters you have to untrain that for when they want to hit a leg and they look down their eyes will track to what they want to hit. And that's a telegraph. So you, yeah. need to, you need to train that telegraph out of them and say, you got to be good enough at hitting the leg without looking down directly at it. You got to look, have that soft focus on your opponent's, you know, clavicle area and be able to hit the leg without telling them you're about to hit the leg. Cause that's, mm -hmm. that's your natural instinct. Yeah. As I mean, there's the, Hardly anyone will, will do anything without focusing on it, on, on it. You know, I think the only example I've seen is, what's his name? The Super Bowl Stafford. <laughs> Just oh, yeah. hurled a ball yeah. in a random direction. Yeah. You know, that's not what happens in a fight. You know, beautiful. Yeah, that's a highly uh, disciplined fighter. And that's that, the other thing. I've yeah. seen highly disciplined fighters get into fist fights over out of anger, and they don't look like a professional fighter anymore. They look no, like they your average street ruffian, you know, and, and brawler. Yeah. Like, what happened? You you know you take a, a high level trained fighter and he throws everything he knew right out the window when he gets enraged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's they do. Yeah, and it's as it I've I've seen that so many times as well. Uh, I used to train with a couple of guys I trained with were in the Scottish karate team, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw one of them get attacked outside a nightclub back in the 90s. And he did everything he did in the dojo. Mm-hmm. But he did everything he did in the dojo. <laughs> Wasn't and ready for the fella, He didn't yeah. adjust to the fact that he was standing in front of someone who had you know, six or seven drinks down them. I don't know, he'd probably taken some form of barbiturate that night, I dare say, and was really quite uh, upset. <laughs> you know, with him. So he, he didn't recognise the difference in threat. So he did great karate, and then the fella just poleaxed him with one punch. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he hit the guy three times and kicked him in the head. But this fella just was not taking it. And it was That's just... another thing you, you can't really simulate in a dojo is what is it like to deal with a, a chemically altered individual? No, you can't. No. I mean, that's you can describe it. You can, if you want to try to role play it a little bit, you can kind of do it, but it's so fake. You, it's, it's not going to be what it's going to be yeah. like. And actually, yeah, anyone who tells you that they train that way, you know, without actually <laughs> doing it, is, is talking nonsense. You, you know, it's yeah, and so we we do have to understand the limits of our training in the dojo. We, we are training to simulate. And by the way, we, neither of us are advocating getting a student on PCP to so you can train against somebody who's who's <laughs> chemically altered. Like, don't do it. Don't even think Absolutely, for a second. Yeah, that would be a good yeah, idea. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. That would be the thing, isn't it? You set your student on a bad path. One night you come into the dojo and you just hear, you were born in the darkness. <laughs> I've lived in it, molded by it. <laughs> you know what I mean? You turn, turn one of your students into Bane just to see how well you can fight them. It, it's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, geez. You know, I, yeah. I remember, I think it was Richard Strazzi Heckler's book about inside the, or uh, in search of the warrior spirit when. He was he was brought in, I guess, as a consultant to train some of these uh, advanced military you know, kind of tr- uh, forces, you know, in a small mm-hmm. environment about how do you how do you mentally prepare for an engagement where you could lose your life? And he mm-hmm. said, that's the paradox. How do you make training genuine enough without actually harming or killing the people yeah. that are training? You, you, there's that's an unsolvable training problem. And I know I did an episode a while back on the unsolvable mm-hmm. training problem, which is you can try to simulate, and this is kind of what, what Strazi Heckler got to, is you can segment and take different aspects that you can train safely, but what you can't do is put them all together into an exercise. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you have to train those individual things and then have your students or your soldiers understand you're going to have to put all these together at, when the time comes. Like that's mm-hmm. how this is going to work and the only way that it can work. Because I know a lot of martial artists like we just need more reality. We need to get tougher. We need to, you know, we got to bust each other up in practice. And it's like, no, that's not the responsible way to do it. And even the professionals, you know, training professional military acknowledge, no, you cannot do that. Mm-hmm. And not even just shooting live rounds at each other, but like dealing with <laughs> knives or whatever. Yeah, just end, yeah. Doing. Like, you, can't, you know, it just we have to accept that and we we yeah. can rather than be frustrated by that limitation recognize that it is it is what it is and let's figure out the smartest ways of isolating those different categories of skills we need to develop and in there you touched on them the uh hardening and toughening exercises the stress inoculation the actual physical technique part which you know you don't even need to do at full speed all the time you should do slow deliberate rolling work where you can focus yeah. on tech. just isolate that one part 
so that when you start to bunch them together, you've done enough training to program the body to move correctly without you having to think about it. Cause your brain's going to be on something else. Your mm -hmm. body's got to be ready to do it. And that's how it assembles yeah. those things. And, Absolutely. Um, it's, it, it's got to be muscle memory. It has to be muscle memory because in the heat of any situation, even, even competing, even in a competition, you don't have the luxury of thinking ahead. And that was something, again, that used to get drilled into us in the karate back in the day was practice using preset movements, preset uh, combinations. But when mm -hmm. it comes right down to it, you have to lose those combinations and become freeform. Because if right. the, those are only there to get you into the position of knowing what could follow on if the opportunity arises. That's why you didn't, it, it's why the individual who has, again, let's go back to boxing. Save a boxer who's got a great right hook, but everything else is weak. He's only going to be competent. That individual, or I shouldn't say he, they, that individual is only going to be competent if they find themselves in a position where they can employ that hook. Everything mm -hmm. else beyond that has to be about positioning controlling their opponent, getting the guard to drop and getting them into a position where they can deploy that weapon. You know, but if if they have medium skill with everything else, rather than throwing all your attacks into one specific thing, and it's the same in Aikido, if you only practice, and we, we see a lot of, I see a lot of clubs and I train with a lot of people who have, who clearly develop their, their big three, you know, Iriminage, Shihonage, Kotegaish. But they don't do a lot of uh, Tainohenka as such. They don't do a lot of Tenshinage, which for me is one of the key fundamental techniques, Tenshinage. They don't do a lot of Kaitennage, so they're not used to taking weight on the kind of underside of the arms and drawing someone round them. So they lose balance when they spin. They're not used to having that control factor. We don't see a lot of the hip throws going in and the ones we do tend to be more judo based as a, or, or more kind of compliant uki based I should say rather than a good judo grapple hip throw ogoshi style type thing we don't see a lot of sutemi waza and sacrifice work quite rightly but they're also useful because sutemi waza puts you on the ground immediately and if you can't get your throw in you then have to counter it with something from the ground up you know, there's lots of techniques that we don't see. A lot of what we see is the big three, Iriminage, Shionage, Kotegaish. And, and, you know, there's many, many more techniques that we didn't touch on there. But when we get back to this concept of fast hands, threat recognition, threat response, and moving your body as you see the intent to strike, the movement of Tenshinage and the movement of the hands is not just you moving in, it's similar to when we do, we, we also do a face-off exercise with balking and you, you have the tips of the balking touching and the objective here is your partner's to come in and strike directly at your head, just in front of it. They're not trying to hit you. And you have to raise and move in before they get that chance. So like you were talking about the sensitivity thing, you have to feel where their balking starts to move against yours. And then as they rise, you have to move in. So you're both making shomenuchi simultaneously. Yeah. And the, the objective of this isn't to be faster than your opponent. The objective of this is to be the same speed as your opponent. It's almost an awase movement. Mm. So that you get used to moving towards an attack, even if it's made with the balkan. Because if you fail to move in, your opponent's going to be in perfect striking range when you don't move. And it's just mm. getting people over that initial fear of moving in, moving in, moving in. And that concept of tenjinage, 
when you move in with the hands in the movement of tension agate, or even just in showman raising the blocking, you're actually bringing your hands into a position where you are able to defend yourself as you're moving. And it's important that we see the correlations between the weapons movement and the body movement. And I know that's something we briefly talked about the other night, is, 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 is that there's getting this correlation. If, if your weapons training does not correlate to your hand techniques, then what you're doing is, all the weapons, what you're doing is, is just swinging a stick about. You, you might as well put on a Jedi robe and carry a lightsaber. It's, it's that ridiculous. It's a bit that useful. But when you integrate your weapons movement into your body movement, when you're training with a weapon, you're training your body. You're not training with a sword. You're not training people to be samurai. You're training people to move their body with intent through the weapon. And that's an entirely different situation. So then you apply those same techniques and that same focus and intent through yourself when, you're, when you undertake things like Tenchi Nage. And the movement in for Tenchi Nage, left hand down, right hand up, is exactly the same as you would do to block an incoming strike and drop an elbow under somebody's chin. It's the exact same motion there, exact same thing you're doing. So you've learned to defend the side of your head, just like we were talking about earlier from, uh, what's his name? Jeff Thompson's book. You've learned to bring your hand down and drop your weight onto it to catch an incoming strike. More importantly, as you've picked up the intent and their arms are going back, you're moving in and you're shutting that distance down while dropping an elbow up under the chin. And you're, you're shutting them down, which then gives you access to the soft muscle and the soft tissue under the throat with the elbow. It then gives you access to more direct attacks. It then gives you access to naked strangles, Hadakajime-style things. It opens up your whole repertoire. But if you stood back and waited for that straight, you could never get into that position. Mm. You know, you mentioned something just a bit, uh, just a bit ago about the... the um, uh, remembering technique and having it have to be muscle memory. And, and I really like that one because I've had a couple of students, you know, after class, they'll say, boy, I, just, I don't know how I'm going to remember all of this. You know, how am I going to keep this straight? And I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not teaching your, your conscious brain, I'm teaching your body how to move. And if we do these movements well enough, long enough that it will start to become ingrained and, and you'll be amazed. You'll start seeing your body respond and doing these movements without you telling it mm -hmm. what to do. You'll tell it when, like go. And then it will just go. And, and every one of them has come back and said, wow, I just felt that. I didn't choose to do, I didn't make a decision. I mean, I didn't, my body just did it. It went. And like, well, that's, that's what's going on here is the level of training is not in the, yes, uh, not in the description. I, I will often describe, here's what we're going to do so that I'm not, uh, I try to give the, the student the most direct route to copy what I'm showing them. But really having it in, get internalized, that's where the learning really happens. And that's the yeah. muscle memory you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It's, we, we've all done that technique, the perfect technique. We've all done one. And someone comes in, we catch them, boom, they go over, they go flying away across the mat. And you're like, oh, God, how did I do that? Um, I don't know how I did that. I'm, I'm, and then you try and do it again. And you're like, you know, your grandmother with a broken leg and you're falling <laughs> over your own feet and it all goes wrong. And it's like, you know, it's, you feel like you're back on the Ike Zimmer frame and you've learned nothing. And <laughs> you desperately want to recapture that single moment where yep. everything went so well. The perfect ma'ai, the perfect ateme, the perfect technique, the mm -hmm. perfect kazushi, everything just worked. And then you spend the next 20 years trying to recapture that and you're never going to get well, it again I've, because I've you're looking for it. Because I think everybody has felt this where you know, they, they, out of the corner of their eye, they see it like an orange rolling off a table and their hand just shoots out and they catch it. Yeah. 
everybody's had an instance like that where their body just responds. It's not planned. They don't even see clearly where the hand's going, but it goes right where it needs to. Like that's kind of what our training is trying to build, not mm -hmm. an encyclopedic database knowledge in your forebrain of every technique or yeah. you know, yes, I think you want to build on the principles, but how they get expressed in those times of chaos where you just adapt to the things that are around you, you perceive what needs to be perceived and you, you blend and execute just automatically. Like that is yeah. the, the penultimate of what we're and looking for. What I love about that analogy as well, the rolling orange is we react so naturally to grab it and their hand mm -hmm. just goes under it and we catch it. And yet, see if that was a crystal vase rolling across the table that's worth $3,000. You immediately go, <gasps> You turn into Jerry Lewis suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everything slows down and you know you're not going to get it because yep. you panic. And that mm -hmm. brings us back to that panic mode where mm -hmm. because the orange is unimportant, we can just reach out and take it. But when sure. it's something that carries weight, and I don't mean in terms of heaviness, I'm talking about something that carries weight or meaning or threat or danger, you know, or worth. That's when the panic kicks in. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing that happens when we compete. It's why we're more likely to make a mistake in the finals of a competition than in the early days of the competition, because the stakes are rising. You, you know, right. the, the, the pot's getting yeah. bigger. Yeah, mm -hmm. and we're then more likely to make the mistakes. And uh, that's when it all kind of falls apart. And I think it's important as well that as martial artists, we maintain that attitude of not treating ourselves or the situation with lack of importance, but trying to maintain that level of importance. Mm -hmm. And that if we can apply just as much effort and training in the dojo for the stuff that doesn't seem to matter much, when it comes to having to apply it, we'll be in a much better position for applying the same level of unimportance, if that's the right word, or the same level of uh, generality to the situation by being more comfortable and familiar with it. It's not mm -hmm. the shock value that then we start moving in slow motion and everything turns to treacle and we don't react properly. That's really mm -hmm. important. And that's where that threat level in the dojo works really well because you don't get caught by surprise. You can move naturally. You know, mm -hmm. you can keep your emotions under control. You can, obviously the threat level has increased. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, and the, the impact and the value of the outcome is going to increase, particularly if someone's threatening you physically. So it's, sure. it, it, you, you know, the prize becomes much bigger. And likewise, mm -hmm. the risks become much bigger. Therefore, it's mm -hmm. keeping that under control and treating it as you would any other scenario that's one of the things that i think is the best things about martial training is it, it does to some extent depending on how much you apply it it does give you that capability to keep calm in the middle of the crisis and therefore react more naturally sure well wow i just took a glance at the clock we we're we're about 90 minutes so uh well i'm sure we could keep, keep going for another two hours but uh let's uh, i think wrap this one up and uh, do you have any kind of final thoughts you want to jump in with? I know we, we, this has been a great conversation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah it, just that uh, no matter what we're doing and how we train, it's important just to understand the value of what you're training and to hold that. Every mm -hmm. single session is truly a gift and a, a method of learning. If we can take that and apply it and 
not look at ourselves as, as, as try to turn ourselves into like ultimate fighters and warriors when it comes to this. Just accept that we're, what we're looking for here is a level of understanding of ourselves. If we know ourselves and know our weaknesses and are honest and open about facing them, then contacting our training partners to expose those weaknesses and go into them, whether it's doing more threat assessment training, whether it's doing more awareness training, whether it's just doing it yourself, walking down the street and saying, okay, that guy looks a bit threatening, that one doesn't, that one doesn't. If I were caught in a situation here, how could I control my environment? Those little exercises that we can do that make us more capable and more adaptable, and then therefore give us additional tools, thought processes, and awareness when it comes to having to apply any of this, which I hope anyone listening to this never has to use their stuff. And I say that all the time. I pray to God, whatever your beliefs are, whatever your feelings are, you know, that you never have to use anything that you're training for. But at the end of the day, keep building on it. Look at every single aspect of life and nature as a learning experience, particularly with regards to how you can bring your training into that environment. That's one of the most important things we can do. And that takes away that initial fear and shock. But yeah, that's basically, I think that's one of the key aspects. For those who are maybe interested, there's a couple of terms that are useful and you can you can start to do a little bit more investigation on what Stephen's talking about. And they call it the terms either cold reading or uh, profiling, where you talk mm -hmm. about looking at somebody in just a few moments, uh, split seconds even, assessing them and getting a handle on what their threat level likely is. And that can be reading their mood, their movements, their body language, all of that stuff is wrapped up into those terms, um, cold reading and, and profiling. I know that there's material on that out there. It's kind of difficult. There's not a lot of it. It's kind of difficult to get really. And this is going to sound weird, but the best way to do it is just practice it. Look at somebody and a total stranger and say, what kind of mood are they in? What what's going on in their head? just spend a moment and try to look at the world kind of through their eyes or kind of estimate what their, what their body, their eyes are telling you, what their behavior is telling you. It'll tell you more than you think if you just take the, a few moments to watch it. And this is something mm -hmm. that bouncers, door people, security people yeah. all do because, and they're all good at if they have had that, that type of, uh, been in that type of environment. You know, you can read mm -hmm. the person little distorted in the head or they look pissed off or they look, you know, it, it, it's subtle sometimes, sometimes it's very blatant, but the practice is, will do a, will do a ton for you. Even if you can't get a hold of a, of a book or something that will walk you through it. And, and the thing about body language uh, and, and cold reading and profiling books is they tend to be very focused on one thing, like how to, how to read when your when your spouse is upset, they'll kind of focus it into a niche kind of world. So, we're, we're kind of usually looking at the self-defense niche and there's a little bit of writing on it, but it tends to feel kind of vague. There's not like an ABC formula book that can tell you how to read when mm -hmm. somebody's about to attack someone else, but yeah. you, you start, you can, it's a good study. So I just wanted to bring those up as to uh, some, some ways for you to investigate if you're interested mm -hmm. in knowing more and just uh, braving practicing it because it'll, it, it's very enlightening. Um, yeah. All right. Well, and, I think uh, we're kind of. I, I was just going to say, Tristan. Please, everyone, don't blatantly stare at people in the street, or you will end up using your skills a lot more than you want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be yeah, subtle. This is true. <laughs> um, yeah, you'll find the body language of staring is that of a challenge. That is like yeah. an animal eyeing up their their prey is when you stare, and it will frighten people, and you will get in trouble more than likely. So, 
Very good advice. Well, Stephen, thank you very much. This has been another great discussion. I always like chatting with you. I, uh, I wish we were close. We could get together for a pint. That'd be great. I'd love that. <laughs> that would be wonderful. So, all right, well, have a great rest of your day and we will talk to you again very soon, my friend. You too, Tristan. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Stay tuned for more episodes. I've got some great stuff on the way very soon. In the meantime, enjoy your training.